Hey everybody, Pastor B here. Open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 34, and we finally made it to one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. I can't wait to talk about everything in this passage of Scripture. This is where the scribe comes to Jesus and he asks about the greatest commandment. And this is the famous spot where Jesus says, love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. We'll get to all that in just a little bit. But before we do, I want to frame today's lesson with a question to get us to really think about the application in our own lives. And here's the question. Ready for it? How well do you know your Bible? Let's do a little uh, little Bible quiz to get started. Five questions. And I, I made this easy for you because all the answers start with the letter E. Okay, so see how many of these five you can get right. Question number one. Which Old Testament prophet was taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire? Give you a second. And if you guessed Elijah, you're right. Okay, that was number one. Number two, which prophet in the Old Testament saw a vision of a valley of dry bones coming to life? Okay, if you guessed Ezekiel, you're right. Number three, here we go. So again, these the answers are ease, just to help you out. These are getting just a little harder, I think, as we go on. Number three, who was the queen in the Bible, a Jewish queen, who saved her people from genocide in Persia? What was her name? And if you guessed Esther, you got number three right. Good job. Number four, New Testament question. Who was the mother of John the Baptist? Who was the mother of John the Baptist? Again, she was, I'll give you a hint. Mary was her cousin. What was her name? Elizabeth. That's the answer to number four. One more question to see how well you know your Bible. This is the toughest one. Comes from the book of Acts. Who fell asleep during one of Paul's long sermons? This is the guy who fell from a window. Again, his name starts with an E. This is a little bit less well-known, but if you know the, the book of Acts, then maybe you would know his name was Eutychus. Go find that one for yourself if you're interested. Now, the reason I started with the question, how well do you know your Bible, is because there are a lot of people who know a lot about the Bible. There are a lot of Christians who grew up in the church and they can win these kinds of you know pop quizzes, sort of trivia, Bible trivia stuff but they're missing the whole point of the Bible. This is what we're going to see in the case of the scribes that Jesus will be interacting with in today's passage. The scribes were people who knew a lot about the Bible. They were experts on Scripture, but they missed the whole point. You know, I've been doing ministry for well over two decades, and I can't tell you how many people I've met at church who leave our church because they want to go to another church because our church isn't deep enough. These are the people who end up hopping around. They know their Bibles. They've got a lot of scripture memorized, but they want to find a church that goes deep. They want to find a church that has longer sermons than the sermons that we give. They love their Greek and their Hebrew Bible studies. They love it when a pastor bring some information that makes them sound really smart. Now, I don't, I don't mean to be facetious here. I'm really trying to be gracious because I'm not saying these people aren't Christians necessarily. I, I think there are a lot of people who, 
who know the Bible and they know Jesus, but yet they still can kind of drift away from just simple obedience to the Bible. That's really what today's lesson is, is about. It's about simple obedience to the Bible. A lot of quote-unquote deep Christians, a lot of quote-unquote mature Christians have a ton of head knowledge. But think about it. So many of these people have no connection with, they have no influence on outsiders. In fact, a lot of times they'll go to a church that maybe does have longer sermons, but they tend to have fewer people. Now, I'm not trying to make an argument for like seeker-sensitive churches, you know, that never teach the Bible. It's, you know, just milk all the time on a Sunday morning. It's just a, a big show and they get a lot of people in the door and they're not, never preaching the Bible. That's not at all what I'm arguing for. Please understand that. So I just want to encourage you, even as we start off this topic today, really think about the kind of church that you're a part of the kind of Christianity that you subscribe to, is your relationship with God all about head knowledge or is it about something more? Is it about really applying what God's word has to say, which we're going to learn means that you love people. You don't just love God. You don't just love studying about God, theology, but you love people. This is the kind of Christian that Jesus is looking for. This is the kind of follower that that is uh, like that checks all the boxes for Jesus. Jesus is not interested in scribes. Right? That we're going to be looking at scribes today. Jesus is not interested in experts on the law. If that's where you're going to stop, I, I want to make sure you understand what I'm saying. I'm not throwing. Bible study under the bus. I love studying the Bible. I love it. I love it. I, I went to seminary. I love Greek and Hebrew. I love all that stuff. I think it's great. All I'm trying to warn us against is the kind of religion that elevates head knowledge and quote unquote going deep and then completely misses the whole point of the Bible. If If your religion is more about the information that you have and the Bible studies that you attend, and if it's less about actually loving people and caring about them and wanting them to come into relationship with Jesus, then I think maybe you need to really pay attention to today's lesson. Because Jesus answers a question in Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 28, from one of the teachers of religious law. That's how the NLT says it, but the ESV calls this person a scribe. So remember, these last few weeks, we've been studying the Sanhedrin and these three questions that come to Jesus. The Pharisees asked a question about taxes two weeks ago. Last week, the Sadducees answered a question about the resurrection and marriage and the resurrection. And then today, the scribe is going to come to Jesus and ask his own question. So these three groups, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes, made up the group called the Sanhedrin. And remember, the Sanhedrin, these were the like the kind of the high, the Supreme Court for the Jewish people. These are the ones that are going to essentially, um, you know, be 
putting Jesus to the test and getting him in trouble with the law. And eventually they're the ones that put him on the sham trial. By the end of this week that we're studying here in Mark 12, by the end of this week, Jesus is going to be hanging on the cross at the hands of the Romans, but the Sanhedrin was behind all of it. So Mark 12, 28 says that one of the scribes was standing there listening to the debate. So he was listening to what Jesus had just said to the Sadducees in answer to their question. And it says that he realized that Jesus had had answered well. So notice that this guy, first of all, it's not a group. You know, two weeks ago, it was a group of Pharisees that came to Jesus to trap him. Last week, it was a group of Sadducees that came to Jesus to trap him. This time, it's one of the scribes that seems to be having maybe a little bit of a come to Jesus moment here. He's actually a little bit of a good guy. He's not putting Jesus to the test. I think he's legitimately asking him a question because he wants to know what Jesus has to say about it. He says he realized that Jesus had answered the Sadducees well, so he asked, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Now, before we get to Jesus's answer, let's talk a little bit about these scribes. The scribes in ancient Israel were kind of like the lawyers. They, they were the ones who studied the law, you know, especially the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments, and all of the other laws in uh, in the Old Testament. Pillar New Testament commentary says this: that scribes concerned themselves with proper exposition of the law and earned a reputation as experts in its interpretation. The rabbinic tradition counted, get this, six hundred thirteen commandments in the Torah in the Old Testament, three hundred sixty-five. That's interesting. Three hundred sixty-five prohibitions. So there was one prohibition for every day of the year. That's interesting. So 365 prohibitions and 248 positive commands. So that adds up to 613 commandments in the Torah. And among the commandments, rabbis differentiated between what they called heavy and what they called light commandments. So you had 613 commandments in the Torah, in the Jewish Old Testament, 613 and the scribes were the experts on these 613. I mean, this is what they spent their life doing. They studied the law. So if we would have asked them the question that we asked you today, how well do you know the Bible? Now, they wouldn't have said the Bible. They would have said scripture or Torah. How well do you know the Torah? The scribes would have said, I know it really, 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 really well. It was what their lives were all about and so that's why the scribe's question was really interesting. He comes to Jesus, this, you know, this uh, son of a carpenter, this nobody, at least that's what most people thought about Jesus. He was unlearned. He didn't go to seminary. He didn't go to school for this stuff. But yet he seemed to know so much about it. This one particular scribe was super impressed with him. And he comes to Jesus and he legitimately wants to know Jesus of all of the laws, right, of all the commandments, remember, he knew 613 commandments, of all the commandments, which one is the most important commandment? Now, back to the Pillar New Testament commentary, this is interesting. Actually, the NLT is not an entirely accurate translation, because according to the Pillar New Testament commentary, the Greek text for the word all, of all the commandments. The Greek word is the word panton, and it's a masculine or maybe a neuter word. 
So it does not modify the word commandments, which in Greek is a feminine word. So interestingly, if you were to dig deep on the Greek here, apparently the word all doesn't go along with the word commandments. It doesn't modify the word commandments. And so the pillar commenter goes on to say that the sense of the question is not which is the most important commandment, right? It's instead the better translation, according to the pillar commentary, is which commandment supersedes everything and is incumbent on all humanity, including Gentiles. So maybe a better way to frame the question that the scribe is asking here isn't which is the greatest commandment, like which one is the greatest, but rather which commandment sort of frames all of the other commandments, which commandment is sort of superseding the whole thing. You know, it's like the scribe is saying, I, I've studied the 613 commandments, but, you know, give me the cliff notes on it. What, what is the... What's the big picture? I love this kind of question, by the way, because I love frameworks. I, I think it's really hard to understand to understand 100 or 613 different rules. For me, as a student, I would have to come at it and say, could you kind of give me just a good overall summary of, of the whole thing? Could you, could you tell me what the whole thing is really about? I think that's essentially what the scribe is asking Jesus. And here's, here's how Jesus answered the question, Mark 12, starting verse 29. Jesus replied, the most important commandment is this, quote, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Now, let me explain to you what Jesus just quoted. If you're reading this from your Bibles, you'll notice that this is a quote from the Old Testament. Jesus is literally quoting the Old Testament. So this guy, the scribe, might have expected Jesus to give like the first commandment or the second commandment or something like this, but Jesus didn't list any of the commandments. Jesus actually quoted the what's called the Shema. The Shema was kind of like a pledge of allegiance of the for the people of Israel, it was kind of like, almost like a nursery rhyme. It's it's what parents would would speak to their kids twice a day. They would, they would quote this from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5, the Shema. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord alone. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. So for, in Jesus's day, this was a well-known, um, a very, very well-known quote for every Jewish person. It, but Jesus is giving this whole thing new meaning. Now, let me, if, for those of you who don't really understand the context in Deuteronomy 6, again, the Shema is Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. But if you go back and read Deuteronomy 5, this is where Moses is standing at the edge of the promised land, and, and the Israelites are about ready to take the promised land. And, and Moses is sort of like recapping everything that had happened since the, the people had left Egypt 40 years earlier, and they were trekking through the wilderness, and, and God gave the Ten Commandments to them. Well, Moses summarizes the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 5. He gives the Ten Commandments once again to the people as they're standing at the edge of the promised land. And then he's, it's kind of like this final pep talk that he's giving, giving to the Israelites. And he says, it crescendos in the Shema. In fact, I want to encourage you, I'll put a link in the show notes below to our Shema series. We have a six-week series 
that breaks down all of these words, listen, which is Shema, and Lord, and love, and heart, soul, strength. We do a word study at, at pursuegod.org slash Shema. We do a, a six-week word study on this important statement, this important uh, you know, Jewish Pledge of Allegiance, this prayer that that fathers and sons and daughters and grandfathers that everybody that everybody knew and memorized. In fact, the reason that everybody knew it is because it says in verse seven, Deuteronomy six, verse seven, Moses says, "Repeat these things again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road, when you're going to bed, and when you're getting up." So that that's what they did after Moses gave this statement, the Shema statement, Deuteronomy six verses four and five, generations and generations, all the way up to the generation of Jesus, even to Jewish families today, they would be obedient to Moses' commandment and they would quote the Shema together so everyone would have understood these words. But here's the thing with, I don't know, you could call this like a religious incantation almost, like it, maybe you have this in your own family, like statements that you, that you go over every day. Isn't it true that sometimes the more you repeat something, the more you watch something, maybe it's a show that you watch, or maybe it's a passage that you've memorized, or maybe it's a prayer that you pray? You know, for years, I have like this prayer that I just instinctively pray, and it, it almost loses its meaning over time. Does that make sense? I mean, can you think of that in your own life, a time when, you know, you've, there's something that's meaningful to you, it's very meaningful to you. And so as a result, it's so normative in your life, you're so comfortable with it that you almost, you almost forget its meaning. It, it almost, uh, it, I think the phrase is, time in erodes awareness of. The longer you spend time with something, the, the, maybe the, the more eroded your awareness of the true value of that thing is. I mean, let me give you an example. Maybe you walk into your house and you're like, oh man, we got to fix that picture frame on the wall. It's crooked a little bit, right? But the longer, the longer you wait to do it, the more comfortable you become with it. And pretty soon you forget that you have to correct the thing. Does that make sense? Haven't you ever been to somebody's home and you're like, why is that picture frame um, not square to the wall? I don't understand why they wouldn't just fix it. Maybe you're even tempted if you're a little OCD to go over and fix it yourself. Well, I mean, that's the principle. Time in erodes awareness of the longer you're around something, the more comfortable you get with it. And the, and the Shema was something that the scribe was very, very comfortable with. He, if he had kids, he would have he would have repeated this with his kids that morning, and he would do it again later that night. And this is what is so brilliant about Jesus's response, that Jesus is basically saying to the scribe, he said, the most important commandment is the one that you already repeated this morning with your family. It's the one that you've known your whole life, but you're not really listening to it. That's what Shema means. Shema, the first word in the prayer is the word listen. But it doesn't just mean like listen with your ears. It means it means like listen and obey. That's what shema listen means. It means listen to the point of obedience. It doesn't just mean give it sort of lip service. 
which isn't this what happens sometimes the longer we've been Christians is the more we give some of these concepts lip service, but we're not really listening. We're not really obeying. We're not really giving our whole heart, our whole soul, our whole strength to God and to his kingdom. And so that's what's behind the statement that Jesus says, this is it. You should know it. In fact, it's so simple. It's so simple that your kids even know it. Your kids even have it memorized, but, they, but do they understand what it really means? And when you think about the Shema, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. When you think about the Shema, isn't that just a summary of the first four of the Ten Commandments? The first four commandments are commandments about your relationship with God. And Jesus is basically saying the most important commandment starts with your relationship with God, because out of your relationship with God flows all the rest of it. So he's not saying to ignore God or his word or his commandments. I want to make sure you hear this. I'm not saying it's bad that you know the Bible. It wasn't bad that the scribe knew the Old Testament, the Torah. But what Jesus was saying, it's that you've got to really, really let it penetrate that your relationship with God is the starting point for all of the rest of your life, all of the rest of your morality, all of the rest of your religion, everything else. So he says the most important commandment is to get right with God. That's a good way to say it, is to get right with God, is to listen to God, it's to submit to God, it's to give God everything, all your soul, all your heart, all your mind, all your strength. Again, we get into this in the Shema series if you want to dive into that. We don't have time to do that in this podcast. There's so much to unpack there. But essentially, Jesus was saying, it's so easy that a kid could do it. It's so easy to understand, to really, I mean, it's so easy to articulate, maybe not to really understand and live out, but it's so easy to articulate that even your kids have been articulating it their whole lives. But Jesus didn't stop there. And again, why that shouldn't surprise us. Jesus always had a surprise up his sleeve. He adds, in his response to the scribe, he adds a second commandment, and he calls it equally important. Here's what it says, verse 31. The second commandment is equally important, quote, love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus said, no other commandment is greater than these. Okay, so what's he quoting this time? So in the first part of his response, he quotes the famous Shema, Deuteronomy 6. In the second one, he quotes from Leviticus chapter 19. I actually had to look this up because if, if you're anything like me, you will have Jesus's response memorized because Matthew talks about it, Mark talks about it. So I've, all, I've always heard this from the vantage point of Jesus in the New Testament, but I spent some time recently sort of understanding where this comes from in the Old Testament. Leviticus 19 isn't, isn't exactly well known. Leviticus 19 is kind of obscure. It's kind of hidden away. In fact, the section in the Bible, in my Bible, is titled Holiness in Personal Conduct. In your Bibles, it might say like miscellaneous laws and regulations or something like this. Here's how Leviticus 19 starts off. Now remember, the, the idea of loving your neighbor as yourself is going to come later on in Leviticus 19. It's going to be Leviticus 19, verse 18. But I want, you to, I want you to hear some of the context 
for this chapter, this more obscure chapter in Leviticus in the Old Testament. It says in verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, give the following instructions to the entire community of Israel. You must be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Does that sound familiar? This is, this is a verse that Jesus quotes in Matthew 5, when Jesus is telling us that we need to love God with all of our heart, when he's telling us that, you know, that we shouldn't look with lust upon a woman, when he's telling us to, you know, um, cut off your right hand. I mean, this, this kind of famous passage from the Sermon on the Mount, from starting in Matthew chapter 5, at the end of the chapter, Jesus says, be holy because I am holy. And so Jesus seemed to be pretty interested in Leviticus chapter 19. And look at, look at what comes out of a relationship with God, right? Because that's essentially what it's saying is that if we're, if we're connected to God, which was the Shema, the point of the Shema, that if you get your relationship with God right, then out of that flows all of the rest of your personal holiness, and, and that's kind of what's listed in the rest of Leviticus 19, things like verse 3, each of you must show great respect for your mother and father, okay? Or verse 9, when you harvest the crops of your land, don't harvest grain along the edges of your field, but instead leave that grain for the poor and the foreigners living among you. Well, that's interesting, that, that the more connected I am to God, that, that that means that I'm going to think about the foreigner living among, among me. I'm going to think about the poor living among me. Or verse 11, don't steal. Don't deceive. Don't cheat one another. Or verse 13, don't make your hired workers wait until the next day to receive their pay. Jeez, that seems really specific. Like your, your relationship with God, your relation, you're getting a right relationship with God, Allah the Shema, getting a right, right relationship with God, letting him be the Lord of your life, letting, you know, giving him your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength, that that's going to flow over to the way, the way that our employers treat their employees. I mean, this is crazy. This is thousands of years old. Now we're talking about workplace ethics that flows out of a relationship with God. Or verse 14, do not insult the deaf or cause the blind to stumble. Wow, this is crazy. I mean, again, you, if you think concern for um, you know, the, the people on the fringes of society is only a modern-day American thing, this is all the way back in Leviticus 19. Or how about verse 15? Do not twist justice in legal matters by favoring the poor or by being partial to the rich and powerful. Always judge people fairly. So justice is embedded in this. Again, what is all this flowing out of? It's flowing out of being holy as God is holy. It's flowing out of having a relationship with God that impacts all the rest of our relationships. And then in verse 17, it says, do not nurse hatred in your heart for any of your relatives. Confront people directly so you will not be held guilty for their sin. So now we're talking about like personal relationships being impacted by your connection to God, your relationship with God. In verse 18, the first part of it says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge. Wow. And then finally it says in the second part of verse 18, love your neighbor as yourself. So zoom out for a second and think about how Jesus answered the question of the scribes. He, he said, here's the most important commandment. It's actually a two-for-one commandment. Love God 
which was the Shema, very famous, Deuteronomy 6, and love your neighbor, which was not ever connected to the Shema up until this point. Like what Jesus is saying to the scribe is truly revolutionary, that Jesus could pair up the Shema with this obscure verse in Leviticus, but the reason he does this is because he knows the word, because he has authority over the word. He's the author of the word, and he knows what the 613 commandments were all about in the first place. It all boils down to just two simple things, love God and love people. And that when you love God, when you are really brought into right relationship with God, when you get your relationship with God right, it's going to impact you and it's going to make your relationships with all the other people in your life better. So your vertical relationship with God is first. And when you get that right, it impacts your horizontal relationship with people all around you. And in essence, that's what the Ten Commandments are all about. The first four commandments are about your relationship with God. The last five commandments are about your relationship with people in society. And the fifth commandment is kind of the middle one that holds them all together. And it's about your relationships in the household. Children, obey your parents because this is the right thing to do. And see, here's the thing, that when you get all of this right, when you get your, your vertical relationships right, you get your horizontal relationships right, the, the home is the place where those two things are kind of connected because the parents are sort of standing in for God's authority for a while while the kids are younger until the kids could be directly accountable to God. And then now they obey those last commandments and really all the commandments. But the whole thing, the whole thing is about what I would call integrity. Integrity comes from the, the word for integer or a whole number, that, that you are a person of integrity, that your relationship with God isn't separated from your relationship with people. Which is why I asked the question at the beginning, how well do you know your Bible? So many religiously minded people know their Bible really, really well, and they would say that they love God and they know God, and yet they don't actually love people. They don't actually love the outsider. Their religion is so lopsided, it's so focused on themselves, on their information, on their relationship with God, that they're missing more than half of the picture. Jesus didn't say, he didn't stop at the Shema, love the Lord your God. He said, no, and the second is equally important, love your neighbor as yourself. For Jesus, these two go hand in hand, and they cannot be divorced. They cannot be separated. But so many longtime Christians today so many longtime Christians today are acting like scribes in Jesus' day. They're experts on scripture, but they don't really know it. They don't really understand the heart behind it. Jesus said to the crowds and to the disciples in Matthew 23, the scribes and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. So practice whatever they tell you, but don't follow their example. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. In other words, they've never really read Leviticus 19. I mean, they've read all the other, all the other passages. They really like know all the checkboxes, 
that he what he's saying is they don't practice what they preach. That he's he's telling the people in Matthew 23, the scribes have the information right, but they're not living it out. They're not shamaing. They they're not really listening because remember to listen to really listen means that you're obedient. It means that it impacts your life, that your vertical relationship impacts your horizontal relationships. This was Jesus's answer to the scribe. And verse 32 says this. So the scribe replied, well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth by saying that there is only one God and no other. And I know it is important to love him with all my heart and all my understanding, and all my strength, and to love my neighbor as myself. This is more important than to offer all of the burnt offerings and sacrifices required in the law. So don't, I don't want you to miss this. The, the scribe is actually kind of a good guy here. Remember the Pharisees and the Sadducees before him were trying to trap Jesus, but this guy genuinely wants to know Jesus's perspective. And once Jesus, is, Jesus gives it to him, he says, you're right. I think you're right. I think it's sinking in for the scribe. And that should be good news to us because maybe you're listening to this feeling a sense of conviction, you know, that... You're thinking, man, do I love people or am I just more into information? Am I more into my Bible studies? Do I actually love people? I want you to take hope from this interaction between the scribe and Jesus because because the scribe seems to be getting it, which is good news for all of us. In fact, the passage ends in verse 34 where it says, realizing how much the man understood Jesus said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask Jesus any more questions. Isn't it interesting that, again, Jesus isn't throwing knowledge under the bus. It says, realizing how much the man understood. I mean, I think it really is important for us to understand scripture. I'm not saying that we shouldn't go to Bible studies and study the word and all those things. Of course we should. It's good that this guy understood a lot of scripture. But Jesus said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Experiencing, really experiencing eternal salvation is not just something that we can comprehend or understand. It's not just an intellectual activity. It's deeper than that. It has to do with our attitude, the attitude of our hearts. And clearly this scribe had the, this attitude that brought him pretty near to the kingdom of God. I think that's part of what Jesus is trying to say here. Remember, the context of this whole question was, you know, the guy, the scribe had heard Jesus's answer to the Sadducees about the resurrection. So go back and listen to last week's message on the resurrection and how everyone will be resurrected. Some will be resurrected to life and some will be resurrected to eternal judgment. And it all hinges on what we believe about Jesus. And this scribe, was apparently beginning to see who Jesus really was. This scribe was coming to Jesus with the right heart, the right attitude, this attitude of repentance, this understanding that it went beyond head knowledge to heart knowledge. It was more about submitting yourself to God and allowing him to be the Lord of your life. I think that's all this, that's what's happening here in this interaction. And that's why Jesus said to the scribe that you're not far from the kingdom of God. 
In another place, Matthew 5, 20, one more verse, Jesus says this, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, it's interesting, the scribe wasn't asking him about the kingdom of heaven. The scribe wasn't asking him about eternity. The scribe was asking him about the law. What's the connection between the law or scripture or the Bible? What's the connection between information, which is what the scribe was asking about, and eternal life? There is a connection there, but what is it? The missing link is what we call your attitude. That's why Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and Pharisees thought that they were getting to heaven on their righteousness, and Jesus was saying, you can't do that. It doesn't work like that. It won't ever work like that. Remember, Leviticus 19 starts off with, be holy as God is holy, which is how Jesus ends his teaching in Matthew chapter 5. But in the middle of that chapter, he said, your righteousness better exceed the righteousness of the scribes. Friends, you will not get to heaven because you go to a lot of Bible studies. You, you will not be considered righteous in God's eyes because you've memorized a lot of Scripture. A relationship with God is not just about information. It is about transformation that comes as a result of our repentance, our attitude change. That we come to him and we say to him, what's the most important thing I need to know? And he says this, love God and then love people and don't ever disconnect those two things. And when you do that, the kingdom of heaven is yours.